0: So we welcome you to this uh, very, very special epistle of the New Testament, and last week we learned that there are three things very special about it. First of all, this book of 1 Thessalonians is an early book of the New Testament, early. It's the third of the New Testament (laughs) books that were written. First of all, James was written, James the brother of our Lord, uh, as he was a very crucial and important leader after he was converted. He wasn't saved till after the Lord's uh, earthly ministry. He was a very jealous and proud brother that didn't submit, but when he did get saved, he became one of the most notable early church leaders. That's the first epistle. Galatians was the second epistle of the New Testament, and then 1 Thessalonians is third. The second thing we learned is it's a very specific epistle. James is written to the 12 tribes. That's to all the Jewish uh, people scattered throughout the ancient world. The book of Galatians was written to an entire province, the province of Galatia, which was one of the Roman provinces of modern-day Turkey. But the book of 1 Thessalonians was written to a specific local church, which makes it very exciting for us because it was written to a group of people just like us. A group of people in the first century called out of a hostile, pagan, Greek, ungodly city to Christ. And the third thing we learn is that it can be located very specifically in the New Testament, and that's in the book of Acts. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna quickly survey what we surveyed in in length last Sunday night. The introduction to this book, and it's always best, and I understand that uh, uh, there was a ladies Bible study this week, and everyone was talking about the book of Hebrews, and Bonnie came home after the Bible study and sat down and said, "Uh, tell me all you know about Hebrews. And I said, well, let me tell you everything that surrounds the book of Hebrews. That's how we understand the book of Hebrews, right? It was written to those Jews that were sitting on the fence, not sure if they wanted to follow Christ or go back to the temple. Well, to understand the book of 1 Thessalonians, if we look at where it fits in the book of Acts, and basically 1 Thessalonians is introduced to us in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. And that is the only other than the book of 1 Thessalonians introduction we have to this book. Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses. To understand where Paul was in his life, if we look at the 16th chapter, we can clearly see that. And I noted for you, and if you remember, that the first uh, section of chapter 16 in the city where he was was the city of Philippi, Acts 16, through 21. And we find out that while Paul was in Philippi, he had a wonderful but painful ministry. He had a wonderful ministry to the Philippians, but it was painful. You remember what happened to him. He was beaten uh, because he led this demon-possessed girl to freedom from her demon possession. But not only that, but beginning in verse 22, it was a costly but triumphant ministry. It cost Paul his health. It cost Paul his standing in the city. There was nothing more humiliating than to be beaten publicly. Only slaves and criminals were thus treated, no one else. And Paul was publicly uh, stripped to the waist and beaten severely. So it was a very costly ministry, but it was triumphant. And as you look in the 40th verse as he leaves town, uh, it's fascinating to note that the man who was beaten within an inch of his life by the Romans and thrown into an inner dungeon, it says in verse 40 of chapter 16 of the book of Acts, the last line there, Uh, That Paul encouraged the brethren and departed here He was the one that had paid a significant price in his own body for these people and he's the one that encouraged them and So often those of us that, that get hurt in the ministry or or get worn out or afflicted in some affliction We want everybody to come and encourage us But the scriptures teach us that it's at that time God's grace is most sufficient and we can encourage others so we see that, that prior to Paul's ministry in Thessalonica in chapter 16 of Acts, the first uh, indication we have was that it was a, a very wonderful and painful ministry, but it ends in triumph. But let's look at that actual visit in chapter 17 to Thessalonica before we plunge into the book of 1 Thessalonians. And what we see in these nine and a half verses of chapter 17 Is that when Paul was at Thessalonica, he had a very brief ministry there, but it was very fruitful. It was brief, but fruitful. He worked there in the first four verses you see, three Sabbath days, three weeks. Now imagine this, going to a principal city of the world. Thessalonica is still existing today. It's on two major transportation corridors. First of all, it's on the greatest highway from the east to the west, okay? There's a highway called the Ignatian Way that goes all the way from the Himalayan mountains in India all the way across to Rome. The city that sat right on that freeway, that highway of the ancient world called the Ignatian Way was the city of Thessalonica. Every day, all day long, were constant traveling merchants taking all the goods of the east of China, and India, and all that area, and Persia, and bring them across, and then all the goods exported back from Rome, going back, and so it was a constant traffic. This road is still there today. In fact, it's still two lanes, and many times I've been on that road, and it's it's called the graveyard of the meeting of the two continents. It goes right through Yugoslavia, and across into (coughs) Turkey. And it's an incredible road. In fact, whenever they have accidents, the people hit, the cars burn, and they just push them off to the side because it's so busy that they just push them off to the side, and it's just littered the entire length with burned-out hulks of trucks and tangled buses and cars. Well, back before they had that speed, it was still a very busy road. And Paul came there briefly. He ministered to them in those first four verses. But looking at verse 5, It says, but the Jews becoming jealous. And this was the constant mark of Paul's ministry. Wherever he went, he caused a ruckus. Not on purpose, but because he was so concerned that the truth be given. And that he give it forcefully and truthfully and directly. That there were always, verse 5 of chapter 17 of Acts, the Jews that became jealous. And they took along, as we saw last week, some wicked men from the marketplace, those people that sat around waiting for something to happen. And what we see is not only was Paul's visit there brief and fruitful, but it was also difficult. But what's wonderful about it is if you look at at verse 9 and 10, not only was it difficult, but it was enduring And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them, and the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. But look at verse 10, what it says. The what? The brethren. In this very brief visit to this pagan city, the city that was a seaport, and you know all that comes of seaports, uh, the, the type of life that sailors live when they come in briefly into shore and then take off again. This seaport city with this major highway going through it, this ancient metropolis filled with all the vices of the ancient world. And just to remind you, uh, one of the oldest of all the vices that we know in our world today. And that's what this city was like, if you can imagine the wickedness. But what's amazing is that that brief ministry that Paul had endured. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Why? And what I want to ask you is, what type of man and what type of message did that man have? The Apostle Paul, as he went to a Greek seaport city, briefly stayed, suffered immensely, again, as he was thrown out of town, what type of message did that man have for these people? Well, now turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, or continue there if you still have your finger there. And let's look at his message. What kept that brief message visit of Paul that brief ministry of Paul perhaps six or eight weeks at the most what kept that ministry alive what kept new life thriving in the midst of such a hostile pagan city what kept the small beginning flaming alive into a vibrant witness for Christ in fact Thessalonica the church still exists there today in Greece there is still a Christian church holding to the orthodox doctrines of the scriptures in Thessalonica 20 centuries later. Thessalonica was known through the centuries as a missionary church. They sent missionaries to Europe and all through the central European Slavic peoples. What was that which kept them going? Well, we noted last week it can be found in the third chapter, the 13th verse. And Let's turn there and then at the back of your bulletin I'm going to share with you uh, these special, special themes of the chapters, which all centrally uh, bear around this 13th verse of the third chapter. Look at that, chapter 3, verse 13 of First Thessalonians. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. What was Paul's message to these people? Brief, yes. Difficult time there, yes. Yes but a fruitful ministry. Why? Because chapter 3, verse 13, he had an enduring message to these people. He said to them, if you will bow before the God of heaven, you formerly, as we'll see in the days to come, were idol worshipers. These people worshiped graven images. They bowed down to shrines and all types of pagan uh, sacrilege and all that surrounded that. How could they live differently? He said right here. By allowing the eternal God to establish your hearts in unblameable holiness. So that's the message, Paul. How do you make it practical? Well, let's go through the book and beginning at your notes there. I said, let's learn today, right in the middle of your notes in the back of your bulletin, through Christ's promise coming, we have five things. And Paul gave this message. He gave this theme. He said, I want you to have unblameable lives before God at the coming of Christ. I want you to have this holiness. How do you have it? Well, he tells them in every single chapter, he mentions the coming of Christ. And through Christ's promised coming, we have, first of all, chapter 1, verse 10, we have a present hope of salvation. And that is to be contrasted with what they didn't have when they were pagans in Thessalonica. The greatest curse of the ancient world was the hopelessness. And if you can read Latin, if you are from the old school, I remember when I went to school, I had to take two years of Latin from a Roman Catholic priest that came to our school and taught us Latin. And I didn't like it then, but I'm sure glad now. Because if you can read Latin, and if you ever travel in the ancient world and look at those inscriptions, you see that the ancient world was a world of hopelessness. And one of the most fascinating contrasts is to see in the streets of ancient Rome the gigantic edifices of those imperial, wealthy leaders of the Roman Empire with their huge tombs and in great big letters inscribed the mournful hopelessness of death. And just six feet under the ground, in the catacombs, to see the glowing eulogies of their present hope of salvation that these people had. Not only did they have a present hope, but it didn't end there. They had a future joy in homegoing. And this is something that should just throb in our hearts, that it's not just for now that we live. It's not just to try and pack in as much as we can here in this life even in service for Christ, because we have a future joy in our homegoing, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the taking home to be with him of his saints, the scriptures say. And we saw that in verse 19 and 20 of chapter two, that there was that future joy in their hearts of their home going. Chapter three, verse 13, which we already noted this morning, the theme of the book, this theme impresses on our heart that there should be a constant cause for holy living, a constant cause for holy living. That there should be in our hearts as there was back then, and it's interesting when one of the ancient historians, Herodotus, was describing the Greek culture. He said that the Greek culture was best compared to a cesspool. And I believe that this church in Thessalonica especially as mirrored in the 13th verse would have been a holy island floating in the midst of that filth that they had how did they do that well 313 teaches us there should be a constant cause because of Christ's promised return we have a constant cause for holy living did you think about that this week did you think about that as as we walk through life as we're confronted with the world that I have a constant cause For holy living. And so should you. Because of Christ's promised return. Well the fourth aspect of Paul's message to these people. Is in the fourth chapter. Verses 17 and 18. We have a constant source of comfort. We have a constant source of comfort. Because of Christ's promised return. We have the one who will make all things right. Vengeance is mine saith the Lord. The Lord will recompense. We don't have to be vindictive in our lives. We don't have to be going out and making all wrongs right. Because someone is keeping the records and we have a constant source of comfort. We have a constant source of comfort when we see beloved Christians wasted by disease. I remember going to the one hospital in Los Angeles Uh, We had over 800 senior citizens. I always had a whole bunch in the hospital. And I remember going through those wards and seeing all the different people in all the different stages of consuming disease and seeing the glow that came from those rooms. Whether it was the unknown virus where you had to wear the mask and the hat and the, the whole scrub suit to go in and visit them. Or whether it was just well-known cancers of all sorts, or if it was the heart failure, or the kidney failure, or the liver problems. And just looking and seeing a dear saint fading away, how do you deal with that? Right here in the fourth chapter, we have a constant source of comfort. God knows all of our days, he knows the length of them, and he knows the purpose that he wants for us to accomplish. And because of Christ's promised return, we have a constant source of comfort. Finally, in chapter 5, verse 23, we saw that the message of this book was encapsulated again in the fifth chapter, the 23rd verse. Not only through Christ's promise coming do we have hope and joy and a cause for holy living and a source of comfort, but we have in the fifth chapter the ultimate promise of a completed salvation. Yes, we struggle And Paul's testimony, chapter six of Romans, he said, I struggle with my flesh. Chapter seven, that which I want to do, I don't do, and I go back and forth, but chapter eight, to the extent that I allow Christ to conquer through my yielding to him and walking in the spirit, I can experience what I shall someday have eternally, the promise of a completed salvation But now as we continue this morning, we ask, what kind of a man was it that wrote this kind of a message? What kind of a man could be beaten in Philippi, thrown out of town after being dragged through a dirty dungeon, and could walk, as we learned last week, 97 miles to another town, minister briefly, go through all the pain he went through there, leave them, and write back an epistle like this. What kind of a man was that? Well, that's going to be our pursuit this morning. And I've left this little space for you at the bottom. Now that we've seen the message that he wrote to these people, let's learn a little bit about this man, Paul. How could he write such a message? What kept him going? And I think about, he had every kind of inclement weather as we're facing right now. If you know anything about Asia Minor, Paul had to walk through mountain passes that were filled with snow. He had to walk through desert lowlands, much like the Mojave Desert and the Sahara areas. Every type of climate. What kept him going? And I'd like to just look at his life from two perspectives. And this morning we're only going to see one. What was his life's motivation? What came out of him that caused him to have such a powerful ministry? And I would say this, that Paul embodied the life of Christ more than any other single human being. And all that we saw in this theme of 1 Thessalonians, this present hope of salvation and the future joy of homecoming, and all those things that we saw in that book were just the outflow of this man's passion for Christ, his motivation to be like Christ. And that motivation, if you were to take all of his epistles And to just put them together and to distill them down and say, Paul, what made you tick? Paul, what kept you going? If you were to do that this morning, which we will do, you'd see that there are really some very basic secrets that he had to his life. And you see him coming out in Thessalonica. You see him coming out in the book of Acts. You see him coming out in all of his epistles. You see them coming out to the very end of his life in the pastoral epistles as he sits in a dark, dank putrid Roman cell called the Mamertium prison. Those same secrets are oozing out of his life because he had a motivation to pursue Christ. And we're going to look at that this morning. Well, what was the secret of Paul's life? And I want you to do some turning around this morning. We'll we'll stick into... uh, 1 Thessalonians in the next few weeks, but this morning I want you to run all the way around it. Turn to Colossians. That's the next door. It goes uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. Turn back one book to Colossians. And the first secret of Paul's motivation, the first secret of Paul's life, how he distilled the Christian life down to keeping him going, walking with his wounds and walking in the midst of affliction is that he had a breadth of vision. And if my prayer is to be crystallized this morning, it would be that this congregation has the same secrets motivating us to ministry that the Apostle Paul did. Because his life was written merely as a picture of how a human life can be channeled into pursuing Christ. And the first thing we see is, Paul had a breadth of vision. You say, what does that mean? Well, Colossians 2.9 tells us one aspect of it. Let me read that to you. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. Paul's telling us a little secret there in that second chapter, the ninth verse. And actually, this is what he's saying. He saw the carpenter of Galilee to be the image of the invisible God. Did you catch that? Look at verse 9 again of chapter 2 of Colossians. For in him, that's the lowly carpenter of Galilee. That's the lowly itinerant prophet preacher that everyone got all amazed about quickly and followed and then they left him behind and let him get crucified. But Paul said, I have the big picture. I have the breadth of vision. I see that the carpenter of Galilee, the man from Nazareth, the despised servant that suffered and died, I see who he is. And who was he? Verse 9. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead, of deity, dwells in a bodily form. What does this mean? And how does this impact us today? Well, I wrote down a few things. That truth is a dividing truth of all time for all who ever shall live. Jesus Christ and who he truly is divides all who ever live in this world. Anybody that comes to your door knocking. Hello, I'm from this or that church. Hello, I'm from this or that group. The one thing you need to find out immediately is, who do they see that carpenter of Nazareth to be? Who do they think that that itinerant preacher from Galilee was? Well, all people will either know him as he is in truth, or they won't. There is only one scriptural, biblical, orthodox, eternal portrait of who Jesus Christ was. And that's right there in Colossians two nine. He is the embodiment of all that God is in a human form. He was God. He is God. He is the second of three persons of the Trinity. And He is the one to whom all must bow for eternal life. All churches religions and faiths, must submit to the scriptural portrait of Christ to be orthodox and true. It doesn't matter how well-meaning, how good, how historic, how formerly they might have thought of that, all must submit for Christ is the touchstone of truth. He is, as you know, the way, the only way, right? There are not many ways to God, Even as I was sharing with people this week about Christ, they say, oh yes, uh, I, I know him through my church. I say, well, if you truly know him, you'll know him the same way that I know him, because he is the only way, he is the only truth, and the only life. Paul knew and followed and taught only one Lord. The image of the invisible God was Christ. And so Paul, as, as he had this motivation of heart, it was, first of all, a breadth of vision. He saw who Christ really was in a world that had just relegated Jesus Christ to being a great prophet. That's what he still is to many people. Those who thought he was a great teacher, uh, the Muslims say, the, the people that follow Allah, they say, And I remember being on a train once in Northern Africa with a whole carload of Muslims riding around Morocco. And they said, we wanna practice our English and talk. And I said, okay, let's talk. Uh, And they said, are you a Christian? I said, yes. They said, Christ was a great prophet. I said, yes, that's true. But they said, he was just a prophet. And I said, no, that's not true. And then I started thinking I was in Muslim country and they all had those big swords on. And I thought, my, my. But you know, they believe in Christ, but they just believe he was a great prophet. Even the Eastern religions say that he was one of the great revealers of truth. But Paul saw beyond that. And that's what riled up the ancient world because Paul taught, Colossians 2.9, in him, that's in Christ, is all the fullness of God. Now, how is that possible? It's very difficult to describe. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. If you were to see God... W.A. Criswell, the great preacher from Dallas, uh, says it this way. He says, the only God that we will ever see is Jesus Christ. For God is a spirit, and he is invisible. And when we get to heaven, we will not see three floating around. We will see one Lord and God of all. And we will know that it is in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But the only one that we see as a person in a human form is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the image, the representation, the exact image of the invisible God. So Paul's motivation was first in his breadth of vision that Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. But what else did he have in, in this vision that he saw? How did he translate that into ministry? Well, turn back another couple verses, or chapters. Actually, Galatians 4, 4, and 5. About eight chapters back to the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Because what we see is, this man that had such a powerful message for this pagan city was motivated by this vision of who Christ really was. And secondly, this motivation and this vision of Christ was not only that he was the image of the invisible God, but Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says something else. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The second aspect of Paul's breadth of vision, and Paul had this vision of who Christ really was, the second aspect was he saw God's plan in history. Not only did he see who God truly was, that God had revealed himself as The image of the invisible God in this lowly carpenter. But he saw that that God had a plan in history. He saw God's hand in history. Sometimes we just get all focused in on the little. We just see our little piece. Yes, all I do is this little thing here. Did you know Paul could have gotten all caught up with that too? He could have said, oh, the only thing I do is I just visit every jail in every city of every town I go to. Well, the only thing I do is I just have to keep going and getting repaired for my back getting broken open. I keep getting loosened and chained up to the Roman jails. I keep getting let go and and put back in. Incarceration. He could have looked at the little picture, but he didn't. He saw that the one who had called him was the Lord of all, and that that Lord of all, Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says was actively involved in human history, he saw that God had a plan for the ages.